Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the co-host of this show and also of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law Podcast, as well as the wearer of Hashtag Jill's Pins. And today's pin shows Pants on Fire. And that, of course, relates to the book most recently written by our guest today, Don Winslow, which is City on Fire, but also relates to his wonderful um, commentary on the current president, who I'm sure he would agree is our pants on fire. On today's episode of iGen Politics, we have a guest who is a well-known, best-selling, and prolific author of crime and thriller novels, who is now also well-known for his riveting and gripping political ads. That makes Jill and me wonder what it's like for an author to get involved in politics, and if more high-profile authors should use their platform to raise awareness about the issues of the day. Our guest today is Don Winslow, whose book, City on Fire, is being released this month. I'm one of the lucky ones to get a pre-publication copy, and I can say you will not be able to put it down, so I look forward to meeting uh, Don other than on Twitter and actually talking with him about the book. In addition to City on Fire, Don is the author of 22, yes, I said 22 acclaimed award-winning international bestsellers, including New York Times bestsellers, The Force and the Border, the number one international bestseller, The Cartel, The Power of the Dog, Savages, and The Winter of Frankie Machine. Savages was made into a feature film by three-time Oscar-winning director Oliver Stone. The Power of the Dog is not the recent Academy Award nominee, but it, the cartel, and the border have been sold to FX to air as a major television series, and The Force is soon to be a major motion picture from 20th Century Studios. Don is a former investigator, anti-terrorist trainer, and trial consultant, and now lives in California and Rhode Island, splitting his time between the two. Thank you so much for being with us today, Don. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time. We are so excited for this conversation. Um, Let's start with your background, because you have such an interesting life. You were the son, or you're the son of a sailor and librarian. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about that. Where did you get your love for books and the idea that you could write books? Boy, from them. Well, the first question from them. You know, uh, my dad was a a sailor who loved books and my mom was a librarian who loved a sailor. You know, Uh, (laughs) my my dad came out of, you know, he was on Guadalcanal at age 18 with the Marines as a corpsman. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I really understood it until many years later, you know, the effect that that's going to have. But he always said he wanted to just float around on the water, go to every zoo in Europe Uh, which he did and read books. Uh, 
and and that's what he did. So, you know, my mom was a librarian at this little New England, I came up from a little New England fishing town and this tiny library. Uh, and my mom was the assistant librarian there. So we always had books. Books were sacred. Uh, and my sister is also a professional novelist, by the way. Um, we were allowed to read anything we wanted at any age. There was no censorship. Uh, and so I think that's, that's where I got the love of books. Uh, in terms of wanting to be a writer, you know, it's what I've always wanted to do. Uh, as long as I can remember, I thought if I could make a living telling stories, that would be the very best thing, you know. Now, it took life a long time to agree with that. <laughs> there you go. You so, so it's hard to, um, you know, it, you talk about your love for books. I know you can read anything. I'm wondering how you feel about this recent push by the Republican Party to ban books, including math books, and um, closing more and more libraries and bookstores around the country. That's more because of COVID, I suspect. But this this yeah. ongoing push of limiting books. Well, listen, it's terrible. It's it's always the the first move in the fascist chess game, isn't it? You know, to to limit information, to limit education. I have a lot of thoughts about education. You know, if you want to discuss that, but I listen. I obviously I think it's horrendous. You know, I I think we forget sometimes what a revolutionary idea the free lending library was, right? part of the birth of democracy. Because prior to that, the only people with access to information, to literature, to ideas were wealthy people who could afford either to buy books or subscription membership libraries. So now the free public library comes along, right? Everybody can go in and read a newspaper, get a book, have access to these ideas. You know, when, when I was a child and going into this library, I realized I could not only travel in space in that library, I could travel in time. I, I could go anywhere in the world, actually the universe, at any point in time from that little space and in this little town. And so to, to start limiting you know, children's access to ideas. And we always think children are so vulnerable that, you know, that they can't, can't deal with ideas. Uh, I started a Shakespeare program here at the local mm. elementary school. It's been running now for 25 years wow. where elementary kids perform Shakespeare, you know, scaled down versions of the play, but still Shakespeare's language. It, we were not surprised that it raised English scores, in testing, but we were surprised that it also raised math scores, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. So I think when we're afraid to expose kids to ideas, you know, we're killing ourselves. I'm right with you. And Jill and I, we both love libraries. I know Jill has spoken a lot about her love for Chicago public mm. libraries. I'm with her on that. Yeah. And, you know, books are really just the closest thing for me, at least, to getting to like a alternate universe. It's really wonderful. Um, you went on to study journalism at the University of Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Journalism is a little different from the type of work that you do now. Why journalism and what did you want to do with your degree um, in college? And did you always want to become a journalist? Yeah, well, I thought it was the route to becoming a writer. And then, you know, in my teens, my early teens, I was reading you know, guys like Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill, you know, <laughs> and they were very attractive to me. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do. Now, having said that, I, I think I spent 
until my sophomore year in the journalism school. And then I was selected for this special areas program in African studies. And so I, I transferred out and went to that. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, um, you travel to Southern Africa, people who have a love for traveling are some of the most observant and creative people I know. Do you think traveling has helped you in your creative process and as an author? Oh yeah, absolutely. I can't, I can't imagine it without it. You know, um, it's, uh, you know, I went to, to South Africa in the bad old days as a, as a student journalist in the bad old apartheid days, you know, was arrested several times there, um, ended up in Kenya and eventually went back there. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a cliche, you know, that travel broadens, but it, but it absolutely does. And, and it gives us a, an international kind of perspective and the thought that, you know, as much as I love my country and I absolutely do, we're not the only people who have good ideas <laughs> about how to do things, you know? Um, and it was, you know, it's funny. I'm, my, my son's an adult now. He's, you know, in his early thirties, but when he was an infant, you know, we were making our living partly in, in England and in Africa and, and we had no choice but to bundle him up and bring him with us. Uh, he ended up majoring in international service in college. So, yeah, I think absolutely, you know, it's you, a great You mentioned thing. that it took a long time for life to catch up with your goal of being a writer. So w- tell mm-hmm. us about what you did before becoming a writer. Oh, boy. Uh, what didn't I do? You know, <laughs> I, um, I managed movie theaters in New York City. Um, I drove wow. trucks of salad dressing from a town, honest to God, called Beyond Hope, Idaho, uh, to, <laughs> to towns in northwestern Montana. There, there'd have been no French dressing in Libby, Montana without men like mm. me. Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, I worked as a private investigator in Times Square in Hell's Kitchen, uh, Harlem. Uh, later on, I went back to that kind of work uh, out here in California uh, on sort of a higher level. Uh, let's see. I was a photographic safari guide uh, in Kenya and, and later in China and then back to Kenya. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a, a lot of things. And, I, you know, I think I was seven published books into my career before I could quit my day well, job. I can certainly say as someone who, like you, has wow. had numerous careers, not just different jobs, but definitely different careers that I find it totally energizing and like travel. So how did you get from all of these various careers to being a full-time author and filmmaker for political reasons? Boy, big question. You guys don't ask small questions, do you? Um, (laughs) I I kept at it, you know. In fact, I was sitting... um, at a campfire in the uh, Maasai Mara mm-hmm. in Kenya and uh, sick with uh, malaria and dysentery. Uh, so not feeling very well. And, and I had heard uh, the great Joe Wambau um, say that when he was trying to become a writer, when he was a, a, a murder cop, he was a homicide investigator for LAPD, that he decided he'd write 10 pages a day. And I thought, I can't write 10 pages a day, but I can write five and I, I'd better get going. I'd better do it, you know, cause I've been goofing around and not really doing it. And so I started to write five pages a day, wherever I was, no matter what. So I wrote intense, 
in cars, planes, trains, hotel rooms, whatever. About three years later, I had a book. Now, the first 15 publishers did not agree it was a book. Um, but uh, the 16th did, and, and I've been under contract ever since. Um, now, that's been about, I think, 30 years, as you can see. And, uh, in terms of the films, you know, uh, what can I tell you? 2016 happened. Yeah, well, but you've written over 22 books now. And um, so let the creative process and where do you get your ideas? Because that's always the hardest part for me is once I write the first sentence, everything's easier. But how do you get the ideas and do your past careers oh, yeah. play a part in it? I know your past life does because I've just read City of Fire mm-hmm. on Fire and of course, it goes back to your childhood and Rhode Island and the fishing mm-hmm. village. So yeah. tell us more about that mm-hmm. process. Um, my first five or six books, you know, are pretty standard PI kinds of stories. And I, I just made them up. <laughs> I, uh, uh, later on, though, I, I started, I, I suppose I'm probably best okay. known for a trilogy about the, the drug cartels. Uh, and, you know, in that sense, getting my ideas, unfortunately, was not a problem. The ideas were in your face every day, you know, uh, and those books are, there's nothing actually in those books mm. that didn't happen in one form or another. They're fictionalized, but there's not a single incident that didn't happen in real life. And I think the first book took me close to six years because three years of it was research, learning about mm. drug trafficking and the situation in Mexico, and you know, interviewing people and hanging out and, and all that kind of stuff you do. Um, so the, the ideas have never been a problem, you know, uh, because I just, I kind of look at the world around me and go, well, that's interesting. Or, you know, I should write about that or, yeah. So, and I, and I treat it like a J-O-B, you know, uh, I, I start work at five 30 in the morning and, and Whoa. you know, I take some breaks, but I work oh. roughly until five in the evening and yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. Thank I, you. It, it, you had me at five 30. <laughs> I'm someone who's going to bed about five 30. Yeah, I, I usually go to bed about three. Uh, well, we leave. yeah. I, my best work is, is right? from eleven p.m. to three in the morning. Out. That's when when I do my best work. But. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. what? Boy, just not mine. Because yeah. Victor is already a good writer, but um, I want to know what advice do you give people his age on improving writing skills? Because that is one of the most key skills anyone can have, no matter what career. They don't have to be professional writers, but yeah. communicating skills are so important. Do you have any advice? Yeah. Yeah, I do. You know, of course, having been around for a while and, you know, done this a couple of times, I do. It, it's going to sound glib and I don't mean it to write and read, you know, good, good writers are good readers and they read good stuff. It's, it's, it's kind of like food, you know, it's, it's sort of garbage in garbage out. You know, if, if you're, you're reading great stuff, you're going to tend to write better. If you're reading garbage, you that's probably what you're going to produce. And the other thing is right. You know, it's, I think sometimes we get frozen because we're trying to write perfectly on mm. the first draft and nobody can do that. At least I, I can't do that. 
you know, and, and then we paralyze. We go, oh, God, it's not right, you know. Uh, and I write very fast on early drafts. Like, you know, I'm afraid of getting caught, you know, just very fast. Because we can go back and fix it. You know, it's, it's not like we're surgeons with a kid on an operating table. You know, no, nobody's going to die if, if we scrub a passive verb form, you know. And so, but a lot of times I think that we think, you know, someone is, and then we get afraid of doing it. So read, write, and, and just be brave about it. You know, it, it, you can always fix it. I remember reading Anne Lamott's um, uh, really famous uh, excerpt on just her approach to writing, and that really changed my perspective on first drafts, at least. She uh, used this term that is an expletive, but we won't use it on this show uh, because we want a clean version. Um, But uh, in that vein, let's dive into your latest book, City on Fire, which I'm holding up right now. Um, Jill and I, we were honored to get an advanced copy of this book, and it's coming out in paperback um, this month. When I was researching more information about this book, I discovered that you have been writing this book for decades. when exactly did you start writing this book? And at what point did you feel that it was ready to get published? Yeah, um, not to be rude, but but it's not coming out in paperback, actually. It's it's premiering in its hardcover in a, oh, in a week oh. or so. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it took me a while. Look, back in the uh, early 90s, I guess, I realized how ignorant I was. You know, a lot of people came to that conclusion earlier, but it took me to the mid-90s. But... Uh, I had this quite good but narrow education in, in African history and military history. But I realized that other than Shakespeare, which has always been a kind of a passion, I didn't know much about literature. And so I grabbed one of those great books lists and I, I said, I'm going to read the whole thing, which took me about seven years to do. Uh, early on, though, obviously, I hit on the Greek and Roman classics and they struck me um, at, the parallels, rather, between them and real-life crime stories that I'd grown up around were absolutely striking. And I started to think, you know, could I write a, a trilogy, because this is the first volume of a trilogy, that, that basically follows the character of Aeneas um, from the Iliad, you know, up through, uh, while at the same time making it a perfectly contemporary crime novel that anybody could read without reference to the classics at all. Uh, that took some time. <laughs> I was writing other books. I was writing that drug trilogy. But I, I think that the deeper and better answer is I, I didn't have the confidence for quite a while um, to write about my home. You know, uh, I think I needed the, the time and the distance um, to see it in a more objective way, uh, to see it in a fonder way, maybe, you know, uh, we've talked about travel. I, I left there when I was 17 years old uh, and wandered the world, you know, uh, Africa, Asia, Europe, um, all over the United States, finally winding up out here in, in California, you know. Uh, and it took me a while to go home. And then when I started going home, I started to rediscover this passion for it and this love for the locations and, and the people and uh and so finally, I thought after decades, because I've been playing with this book, I wrote the first chapter, I want to say 27 years ago. Uh, so I've been picking it up, putting it down, picking it up, and then finally thought, okay, I, I think you're good enough now uh, to write it. Can you talk a little bit more about that process of rediscovery? Yeah. Um, 
we, my wife and I started to go back there uh, for longer periods of time to take care of my mother, um, who was in her decline, frankly. Uh, And so we at first go back for a few weeks, but as she required more time, it then turned into months and, you know, pretty soon it was half the year. So it was during that process um, that I started to fall in love with the place again. You know, it's funny, I've I've often said, and it's true, I, I never get tired, for instance, of driving the Pacific Coast Highway out here. It's all, every every time I do it, it's exciting, right? I started to feel the same way about these little places in Rhode Island, you know, that, that I was jazzed about going to them. And, and most of them are, you know, within five miles of, of my house, including this old village that I grew up in. Um, and I think... For me to write a book, it requires that kind of passion. You know, I've, I have to be in love with it. Uh, and, and so that's, you know, more or less what happened there. Yeah. So we want to give our audience the chance to read your book, but I will just say it's such a great and gripping book. Every oh, page, you. it's like unexpected. So can you give our audience um, a brief overview of the plot and yeah. what you want readers to take away from the novel? Yeah, look, it's a crime novel. You know, I'm a, I'm very much in my genre and, and, you know, very happy there. Uh, it's about a guy named, uh, Danny Ryan, uh, who starts off as a longshoreman, uh, but connected with, with uh, the Irish mob there. Uh, and he and the Italians or, you know, mob are all friends. And then there's an incident that happens on a beach involving a woman. And that serves as the pretext for a war. Uh, between the Irish and the Italians for control of New England, um, which sort of mirrors uh, what was going on when I was growing up there. And so we follow Danny as, you know, he goes from a foot soldier to a leader and and his life changes. I want to move us to talk about your compelling videos, but before I do, listening to you say you didn't have the confidence to write it, despite how many books you had published, Mm -hmm. made me feel better because... I was asked to write a book right after Watergate. So, you know, nearly mm, 50, wow, yeah. well, less than 50, but almost 50 years ago. And it took me until 2020 to actually do it. And part of it mm. was because I didn't think I had anything interesting to say and I didn't have the confidence to do it. So I'm, and that yeah. was a first book. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's not just my problem, but. Let's talk about your. I know. I think. I think we share it. You know. I. I listen. I wake up every morning, wondering if today's the day. You know that I'm going to hear the bucket scrape at the bottom of the well. <laughs> Definitely not. You have many more books ahead of you, and we'll many more videos yes. as well. Yes. And I want to talk to you about yeah. your political videos, um, which, yeah. first of all, how did you? start that? When, when did that come about? And doing a video has to be different than writing a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we, uh, when I say we, I mean, my, my agent, my partner, and my, my dear friend, Shane Salerno and I, he's a A-list screenwriter in his own right. You know, um, a number of years ago, uh, I, I don't have the exact date in my head, but, um, we decided that we needed to speak out on some issues. I had done this drug trilogy And I started to feel, we started to feel that if I didn't do something 
I was just another guy making money off the drug trade. You know, those, those books were good to me. Uh, and, and I think those books did some good in terms of, of telling people what was really happening in the war on drugs. So uh, I took out a full-page ad in the Washington Post uh, advocating an end to the war on drugs. Similarly, later did an ad in the New York Times about uh, prison reform and sentencing mm-hmm. reform. So that kind of started the political activity because I'm not really a political person. People don't believe me when I say that, but it's true. I've always wanted to be just a storyteller. But then 2016 happened. And uh, we thought, you know, we have something of a platform. You know, I'm not a big name, you know, but there's something of a platform, more especially when a book comes out. Uh and we thought we'd start using social media uh, to produce some videos and, and, and content that spoke directly to people in, in pretty simple and sometimes admittedly tough ways. Uh, because we felt and I feel that this has been an existential moment in American democracy and that we need to do what we could do. And so that's what we've been doing. And, and I just want to say for our audience, if you follow Don on Twitter, you'll be able to see his videos. But is there anywhere else that those are available? Oh, they, they're picked up all over the place. <laughs> Again, I'm, I'm a techno moron, so, but you can, they always seem to be on YouTube and various and, and we will, things, you know. We'll, but yeah, if you go on Don Winslow Twitter, you'll find them. Uh, I've been shocked. I mean, shocked that they've had something like 250 million views. I I can't even get my head wrapped around that. They're you know? they're very very well done. Um, the, the technical quality, the special effects are excellent. And well, Shane's a filmmaker, uh, you know, so we, definitely we get getting that. the That's advantage of that for sure. And um, absolutely, I, yeah. But I want to raise the question of whether you think more authors. Should or people in entertainment in general um, should get involved in making their political views known? And I say that having just recently seen uh, David Mamet on Bill Maher mm-hmm. and being shocked to learn that he was a Trumper. And so, yeah. sort of going like, well, I'm going to tune him out from now on. So, is there a risk of losing yeah. your audience? I mean, by doing mm-hmm. that, yeah, um, y- yes, I, <laughs> uh, I, I sometimes you know get messages to that effect. Um, you know, I get a lot of listen. Most of the feedback is, has been very positive, you know, and supportive, and, and some of it has been vitriolically <laughs> in the other direction. You know, uh, people who want me dead. Uh, but uh, listen, I I can only speak for myself. You know, I, I would not necessarily say it's everybody's responsibility who, who you know, is in public uh, to do this. Uh, I'll only speak for myself in the sense that, that, that I thought it was, you know. Uh, I guess that's my okay. answer. It's fair know? enough. And what do you see as the biggest threat to our democracy? And where are your videos going to focus going forward? Um, you know, going forward, um, 
we're pretty reactive. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It depends on what's in the news, you know, and, and what's happening. The biggest threat to democracy is Trumpism. It, it clearly, the in my opinion, but I'm right, the neo-fascism that, that it represents. Look, we, we had uh, an insurrection. We, we had a man and, and his cohorts try to overthrow the government of the United States, try to overthrow a democratically elected president. And they first tried it, you know, subversively, although we all heard the tapes of him, you know, talking to people about, you know, getting votes, manufacturing votes. And then he tried it violently. And we all saw it. We all saw it. And now I'm asking, where are the consequences? Not, not a, he hasn't been indicted, much less, you know, or, or subpoenaed. Not a single Republican lawmaker who, in my opinion, but I'm right, were accomplices before, during, and after the fact, uh, have been called to this committee under oath. Uh, The Justice Department hasn't indicted anybody. And so people sometimes say to me when I get on about this, is obviously I'm getting a little overwrought right now and I'll I'll dial it back. Uh, They say, well, it's in the past. What does it matter? Let's move on. Well, it's not in the past. And if, if we don't do something about it, we run a very severe risk of it happening again. And that's what I mean by an existentialist moment in, in for American democracy. Well, based on what you're saying, I, Sorry no, for not speech. at all. And I, you shouldn't tone it down for us. But I just want to say we just recently interviewed Ruth Ben-Ghiat. And you will definitely want to listen to that episode of our podcast mm-hmm. because she makes clear the continuum of autocrats from Mussolini to Trump and Putin mm-hmm. and uh, how, how much of an existential threat there is and how much the Republican Party has transformed into an authoritarian party. So I think it, it, you will like listening yeah. to that episode. I will. Look, I mean, Trump is Mussolini with, you know, worse hair and less a command of English. <laughs> but, you know, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't no. make jokes about this because, it, you know, it is serious. And, and we see, you know, his his sickening love affair with Putin and and where that's gotten us. Uh, and this this autocratic thrust, you know, worldwide is frightening. And to add on to what Jill said, I mean, the the idea of accountability and prosecution is so important, um, as Ruth laid out. But we want to end the podcast by talking about the future. You're really busy with writing and creating videos. Besides City on Fire due out next week, you also have a book, uh, While Drowning in the Desert, available for pre-order coming out later this year. Um, are there any upcoming videos or books you want our audience to know about? Oh, boy. Well, you know, a City on Fire, again, is the first of a trilogy. And so it, it comes out this April and the following April and the following April. So all of that. Listen, you know, I've been very blessed in this life. There's a whole bunch of film and television stuff happening. That, you know, I don't know that we have time to get into, but uh, that's all very exciting. And uh, yeah, I'm just, you know, listen, life's, life's worked out pretty beautifully for me. And I'm, you know, very grateful. And we're very grateful that you were willing to spend some time with us today. We thank you very much. And 
encourage our audience to pick up your book when it comes out. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Oh, there it is. And it's uh, City on Fire, and this is the uh, <laughs> what it looks like or what it will look like in once you order your book. So thank you, Don, for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGEM Politics with Don Winslow. We hope you found it riveting and that you'll come back next week for another episode of iGEM Politics. In the meantime, we hope you'll subscribe on YouTube, like this video, hit the bell for our weekly notifications, follow us wherever you follow your podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much, and we hope to see you next week for another episode of iGEM Politics.